She looms as a major threat to win the Kentucky Oaks, but Paradise Woods is so much more than just a racing filly. She's a final living link to one of the most impactful figures in all of American professional sports. The story of the late Herman Sarkowski is told by his son Steve, plus a chat with Joe Sharp, trainer of Louisiana Derby winner Gervin, next here on In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on the Pink Podcatcher app on your iPhone. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Paradise Woods has slipped away by six lengths. The others are in a line at the eighth pole with Abel Tasman running home fairly well into second. But the masterful Mandela has produced Paradise Woods at start number three to a dazzling victory in the Santa Anita Oaks. She wins by a dozen lengths. Paradise Woods is owned by three people. Two of those people are names you might recognize if you follow horse racing these days. Pam and Marty Wygod. The third owner is probably not as familiar to you, Stephen Sarkowski. However, Stephen's late father, Herman Sarkowski, who was a partner of the Y-Gods for many years, was a major builder in not one, not two, not three, but four major American sports. Without him, there might not be a Seattle Seahawks NFL team, a Portland Trailblazers NBA team, or the Seattle Sounders of Major League Soccer, not to mention the champion horses Herman Sarkowski bred and raced. We'll get into all of that with Herman's son and Paradise Woods's part owner, Stephen Sarkowski, whom we welcome here to win the gate. Now, there might not have been the Seahawks or the Trailblazers or anything else for your family if they hadn't escaped Nazi Germany, but I found it interesting to read that your family, who were Jewish, left for the U.S. in 1934 just a year after Adolf Hitler became German Chancellor and well before the Germans invaded Poland in 1939 to start officially the Second World War. How did your family know it was time to leave? Well, according to the folklore in the family, it was really my dad's dad that that uh, was aware of what was going on, and the tale is that he had a friend that was in the SS. And that friend was telling him that things were changing and weren't going very well. Wow. So he decided to get the family out. And uh, like a lot of families, my grandmother didn't want to go. And uh, they used to go into Czechoslovakia, I guess, on the weekends. And one weekend they went away because my dad had two other brothers. And uh, one weekend they went away and didn't come back. Now, your family ended up in New York from Germany in 1934 and then moved to Seattle in 37. Of course, your father's legacy is all centered around the Pacific Northwest. Why did they choose Seattle, especially when travel wasn't nearly as easy in those days as it is today? Well, the way I understand it is that my grandfather had some cousins and relatives and and whatnot out on the West Coast, and... I believe at the time 
he was doing like fur trading or something along that line. And so he had heard from some other uh, relatives that the West Coast was uh, a place where there was opportunity, I guess, and uh, decided to, uh, to bring everybody out here. And uh, that, you know, like a lot of guys that, that left Europe and especially the people that left Germany because of the reasons, it's not something that he ever talked about when I was a kid. And certainly my dad never really talked very much about uh, the progression of what they did. I kind of knew bits and pieces over the years. But uh, to my understanding, that's why they did that. Now, after serving in the Army in World War II, which is amazing considering they defected from Germany before the war, uh, Herman became a very successful home builder and real estate developer. And, in fact, he built the tower that adjoins the Seattle Civic Center. And I've been in the Civic Center, not the tower. Was it, was it his intention to break into sports? Boy, I don't, I, I don't know. I think um, he had been involved in horse racing, uh, you know, for a number of years and had gotten a taste of sports that way. He was a fan. We used to uh, go to, to games here and all that. But um, I think it was uh, the opportunity. He had a friend down in Portland that was trying to get a, an NBA franchise. And uh, through some mutual friends, that conversation kind of showed up in my dad's lap, and he's the kind of guy that, that never uh, looks away at interesting opportunities. And uh, I think that he thought back then that this was one of those opportunities, and Portland was uh, uh, the guy, one of the guys that was bringing it, bringing the idea to him was a longtime uh, sports promoter in Portland, boxing, hockey, whatever they could do. And uh, I think that's kind of how that all started. We're talking with Stephen Sarkowski, co-owner of Santa Anita Oaks Winter Paradise Woods here on In the Gate. Now, Herman was approached about providing a loan to finance the launch of the Portland Trailblazers in 1970 and within 24 hours negotiated his way into becoming the team's majority owner and then divested himself of the Blazers in order to become involved with the Seahawks, which, of course, was a true hometown team for him now. It's another big-name investor, Lloyd Nordstrom, maybe you've heard of Nordstrom, who gets much of the early credit for launching that team. What involvement did Herman Sarkowski have? Uh, so there was uh, another group that was trying to bring an NFL franchise uh, into Seattle, and they had, had brought in a former uh, longtime kind of Husky an NFL great named Hugh McElhaney. And they had another group. I think they were going by the name of the Seattle Kings or something like that. And uh, the opportunity, again, it just kind of started to show up and drift into the, into the ether of my dad and some of his associates. And uh, they talked to him about it, and he wasn't uh, wanting to solely own a team, but he knew obviously lots of people in Seattle and felt like he could put a group together and also felt like the NFL really was leaning towards uh, getting owners that had other prior uh, pro sport and pro franchise experience. But back then, they also had a deal where they didn't want uh, owners, unlike now, to own other teams. So they liked their owners to just be a one-stop deal and only only one 
one team, in this case, an NFL franchise. So the Nordstrom's came around because he wanted a, a larger partner and wanted somebody else that had a, a presence uh, in the city, and he had known Lloyd for a number of years uh, and I think went and presented it to him, and they thought it was kind of interesting, and, and Dad had agreed to uh, be the managing general partner because he was really the only one in the group that had any prior experience. Sounds so quaint now when you talk about the NFL as this mega megalopolis of a of an entity, and it just all seems so quaint. Well, if you look up and go back in time and look at what the franchise cost back then, or in the case of the Trailblazers, what the franchise cost, and then look at what the most recent teams have sold for, it's unbelievable that the the progression has been that dramatic. Now, in addition to home building and the Trailblazers and the Seahawks, Herman Sarkowski, Stephen's father, had been involved in horse racing and breeding for over 50 years. Starting in 1960, he was an investor in the company that built Emerald Downs. And there's a pretty good list of names of top horses Herman Sarkowski owned, including the Eclipse Award winner and 1993 Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies winner, Phone Chatter. Mr. Sarkowski bred... 1989 Breeders' Cup Sprint Champion, Mr. Greeley, as well as the notable sire Dixie Union. Did your dad ever talk about what he loved so much about horse racing? Uh, pretty much everything about it. Uh, he had gotten hooked on it at an at a early age, um, going back, as, you know, like you said, over 50 years. And uh, the very first boat that he ever bought was named after one of his early, early horses, um, I just think he loved the idea of it and the uncertainty of it and the risk of it and the reward of it and the people around it and the excitement of, of seeing what horses could become. And he, he just, it just kind of took on a life of its own, and it, it was uh, something that he was very, very engaged in. And uh, there was a long history, certainly in our region and in Seattle, of racetracks prior to Emerald Downs. There was Long Acres, and as long as I can remember and uh, from being a kid, my dad was going to Long Acres. Now, he had been partners in racehorse ownership with Pam and Marty Wygod for many years. What is it like for you to continue that partnership? Uh, it's terrific. I mean, they, you know, Pam and Marty are very experienced uh, in this arena, uh, way more than me, and I my dad passed away a little over two years ago, and one of the things that he told me uh, towards the end was to make him a promise that I would maintain uh, our half of Paradise Woods. Uh, he felt that this could really be a special horse, and he said to me, you know, I want you to see it through, and, I, you know, it should be great. And, you know, <laughs> all the way to the end, my dad was very optimistic about about how good his horses could become. Paradise Woods of the White Cappers coming home well. In fact, she goes up strongly. True Testament through along the inside. These are the two to pair off and fight it out. Paradise Woods, True Testament with a 16th to go. Paradise Woods blasts away. Paradise Woods impressively in hand late for Pratt by four or five lengths. Well, Paradise Woods, who won the Santa Anita Oaks, was foaled in April of 2014, about three years ago now. Just seven months later, Mr. Sarkowski died at age 89. So Paradise Woods is among the final horses he ever bred. How would he have felt seeing this filly make it all the way to the Kentucky Oaks? 
Well, we've all in the family uh, have been getting a great big chuckle and a grin out of all of this because my dad, I am sure in my mom's words, has been kicking on the walls of the mausoleum. Uh, <laughs> and I told you so, and I knew it, and somebody even suggested to me that I take uh, the video of the, of the last race and play it in front of it. So I may still go do that, but he would be thrilled. I mean, this is the kind of thing that he loved about the sport. And um, I think that when you're kind of the, the guy that, that orchestrates breeding a horse and, and seeing it go do all this, it, it's a thrill for him. And it always was. And he, you know, he always used to just really, really like the process of the whole thing. And, you know, his trainer that, that's training this horse, I think they've been together for probably 35 or more years. And, um, you know, he's been with Pam and Marty forever. And it's just the way he did it. And, I think it's it's really a testament to his commitment to it, and it's we're all getting a huge kick out of it. That's for sure, because I'm certainly uh, not very well versed in all of this, but I, I I think it's just a huge amount of fun, and it's a great honor uh, to his legacy uh, of the sport. So it's great. It's great. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Sarkowski, for a few minutes, and the best of luck, and have a wonderful time at the Oaks. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, we'll be joined by Joe Sharp, the trainer of Louisiana Derby winner Gervin. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to In the Gate. Even when you come with a pedigree, to use a horse racing term, that is still no guarantee of success. Trainer Joe Sharp had a pretty good pedigree. Sharp had been an assistant to noted trainer Mike Maker before going out on his own in 2014. On Sharp's team has been his wife, recently retired jockey Rosie Napravnik, winner of the Kentucky Oaks and two Breeders' Cup races. Pretty good credentials, but yet for Sharp to prove himself to potential owners, he had to do it the old-fashioned way. He earned respect by claiming horses and turning them into stakes winners. Eventually, Ken Ramsey started giving him horses to train. So did other owners. And one of those horses has surprised even Sharp by announcing himself a player on the Kentucky Derby Trail. Irvin now getting up to speed on the outside. Local Hero takes a run at hot foot as they turn for home. Local Hero has taken the lead. What a furlong to go. Here comes Gervin's charge now. It's Gervin who has taken the lead from Local Hero to the inside senior investment. Late game by Hollywood Handsome. They come past the 16th. It's Gervin. Gervin Brian Hernandez Jr. for Joe Sharp. And Gervin has won the Twinspires.com Louisiana Derby. Perhaps it's the unproven trainer. Maybe it's the almost but not quite record of horses coming out of Louisiana over the years. Well, whatever the reason, the Louisiana Derby winner and, before that, the Risen Star winner as well, Gervin, will probably enter the Kentucky Derby not as one of the favorites. Joe Sharp, by the way, won with the first starter he ever entered. Now he looks to win with his first ever Kentucky Derby starter, and we are joined by the trainer of Gervin, Joe Sharp, here on In the Gate. Let's start with the horse. He developed a small crack in his right front hoof. Had that worked on? He worked out over the weekend. How is Gervin doing? He's doing great. Came out of the work uh, fantastic. Um, so, you know, at this point, we're at this point, we're we're uh, you know we're on we're right on track and. You know, uh, I don't foresee any anything getting between us and Derby at this point. 
How has the Z-Bar shoe worked out for him? Well, actually, the Z-Bar, we did, he, the Z-Bar is not on the, uh, it's not a Z-Bar on his right, on the right front. This is a Z-Bar on the left front. The right front was a, was a bar shoe that was made by Raul Bras, uh, custom made for Groove, and it, it is a type of bar shoe, but it's not a Z-Bar, so. Do you think it'll stay on all the way through the race? It'll stay on until the day he runs, yes. It'll be changed for the race to a regular shoe. He was certainly not the favorite to win the Risen Star. When you saw him coming down the lane in a race you know awards Kentucky Derby qualifying points, how did you feel? I mean, that was definitely one of my top moments in my career racing wise. I mean, I will say that it didn't, as far as Kentucky Derby goes, I mean, I'm just a race-to-race kind of guy as far as, you know, the reality of the fact that things can happen and pop up. I wasn't uh, over the moon about being in the Kentucky Derby, more or less. I was excited about winning the grade two there at home at the fairgrounds and then, you know, looking towards the winning, you know, towards winning the Louisiana Derby, which was extremely exciting. You entered Gervin in the Risen Star after running in a minor grass stakes three weeks earlier, not the typical progression for a Kentucky Derby potential starter, and he was stabled at Evangeline Downs, not at the fairgrounds, because of the equine herpes outbreak at the fairgrounds. How nervous did that whole situation make you? Well, I mean, it, it didn't, I wouldn't say it made me nervous, it just made me uncertain and a little, um, you know, I didn't know how he'd handle the grass. I knew I had to get a two-turn race in him before the Risen Star, and I knew I was either going to look like a hero or a, <laughs> or a, um, you know, it's like, well, the grass, but it was really our only option. And, you know, I kind of, because of a lot of the horses I've had in the past, um, I've had a lot of grass horses, and, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to insinuate that I was trying to make him a turf horse. I just was really u- utilizing that two-turn experience to try and be uh, as ready as possible for the Risen Star, and it and it worked out. And he's uh, a good horse, can run on anything, and, and he proved that. I don't think it's preferred surface, but we used it for what it for what we needed it for. Well, in the end, how much of the dis- how much of a disruption was the equine herpes outbreak in general in Gervin's progression? In Gervin's progression, I would I would say it was maybe even a blessing in disguise because we ended up having a little issue with a foot that if that you know would have made the Lecomp stake tough to make anyway, so it gave us a couple extra weeks and um, you know forced forced a little patience and. You know, he, uh, the Evangeline Training Center is a great facility. Uh, my dad was my assistant over there. And, you know, we made trips over there a couple days a week. And it was, uh, you know, yeah, it was an inconvenience, but I don't think it hindered his development at, at all. I know the trend is to space a horse's races more judiciously than in years past, so they wind up with fewer starts by derby time. Gervin has four career starts. How concerned are you with a lack of seasoning? I mean, to me, I, I look at his as a, more of an advantage than a disadvantage just because he's not a horse that, need to me, needs a lot of seasoning as far as uh, race situation goes. He's obviously through. He can be out in the lead sprinting. He can come from behind. He can run on the grass. You know, he's had different circumstances thrown at him almost every time and handled it without, it, you know, ever turning the hair. So he, I don't, I don't question his fitness, so I think the freshness is actually to our benefit. Now, Brian Hernandez Jr. had been the regular rider for both Gervin and McCracken. He decided to stick with McCracken. At that point, who reached out to whom in order to secure big money Mike Smith, who just happened to be available? 
Well, Brad Pegram, his agent, actually called me as soon as we won the Risen Star and said, "Hey, Mike likes the horse a lot. We'd like to, uh, you know, we'd like to come in and ride him in the Louisiana Derby if Brian's going to stick with the Kraken." And you know, we tossed that idea around a little bit, but decided to stay with Brian for the Louisiana Derby, uh, just not to change anything. And then, you know, uh, moving forward, we knew from before even, you know, we won our first stake with Gervin that he was going to have to ride McCracken uh, because that was, you know, the loyal, I knew the owner's connection and he started, you know, the two-year-old campaign on McCracken long before Gervin was even, you know, a twinkle in his eyes. So it's not, it wasn't a surprise to us. To me, it wasn't picking one or the other. It was just, that was always how was, who he was committed to. And, uh, you know, so then, like I said, to have Mike Smith, we were honored and, you know, flattered to, to have an in, have him have an interest in the horse. And, uh, you know, I think we're very, very comfortable with the change and, you know, wish Brian the best. And I think that he handled it. He and his agent both handled it as professionally as we expected him to. And, uh, you know, we we we, uh, we were very comfortable with, with the way everything went down. Now, most racing fans know that your wife, Rosie Napravnik, surprised everyone by announcing her pregnancy and her retirement in the winner's circle of the 2014 Breeders' Cup Distaff with Untappable. At that point in time, November of 2014, how sure were you that you'd be going out on your own after assisting Mike Maker for several years? Well, when, when she announced it, I was already on my own. I had gone out on my own right after the Saratoga meet in September, and she announced in November that year that um, about being pregnant. So I was already actually on my own, and we had just gone on my own. But we knew, obviously, for about a month prior to that that she was pregnant. So, um, But I did already know that I was on my own. We, I had already gone on my own. In fact, uh, it was part of the plan for me to go on my own and start a family. So. And, of course, Carson arrived in... The summer of 2015, trainer Joe Sharp joins us here on In The Gate. Now, you've said in the past that you've seen other former assistant trainers leave too early to go out on their own. You're a grand old 32 years old. Why did you think it was the right thing to go out on your own at that time? Um, It was basically because my hand was almost forced by being so supported. I, you know, I'd been an assistant for almost 10 years, and so to me, you know, that was I paid my dues, um, and I'd worked for some 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 good, great people. Um, you know, I had the my dad was is, was a uh, was a trainer my whole life and a good horseman, and I uh, then worked for Mike Stidham and then Mike Maker, and uh, you know I had Brad Grady and a couple other people um, who had who I had horses while I was with Mike that were my horses that I was training that were under Mike's name basically and you know, had my own clients. And when I went on my own, I already had five horses that I'd been training uh, of my own in Mike's stable. And when Brad Grady uh, gave money to start claiming and said it kind of was one of those deals with it, I thought to myself, well, if I have a support of an owner like this with this kind of enthusiasm, if ever there was a time, the time is now. And I, I sat down and talked with Mike maker and he was very supportive and, and uh, said you know you got a big you know have more support than i did when i started out i think you should go for it and and with that i called ken ramsey and met with him and mr ramsey you know gave me the opportunity to claim 10 to get started as well and uh, the, the stall started filling up pretty quick because we we had a very 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 successful start to starting the business we that first those first three months were were incredible I have to think if you can handle dealing with Ken Ramsey on your own, nothing else is really going to throw you very much. 
<laughs> well, I, do, I dealt with him a lot when I was with Maker, and, you know, because he was, I was there a lot, you know, with, with him a lot, and uh, basically, you know, Mr. Ramsey's been very supportive and very instrumental in, in my career, and, and, you know, he's been, I, I think, very, very high with him and his family, and, they, and his farm manager, Mark Partridge, they do a great job, so. Now, you obviously make observations when your horse is trained. You're training them as we speak. I can hear it. Rosie obviously does as well from horseback. What happens when your observation and her observations differ? Well, at the end of the day, I write the check, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, I mean, we're pretty, she's, Rosie's kind of a, she's one thing about her, she's pretty selfless when it comes to that, and, and she's pretty a uh, student of, of the game and in the regard that she doesn't feel like she knows everything about uh, that there is to know and, and neither do I. So obviously um, we both value each other's opinions and, and there's never a strong disagreement on what to do with one because basically we're, we are, our idea is part of what, you know, brings us together in general is the fact that we have a lot of the same values in, in, in life and horsemanship and, and in ge- everything in general. So it's kind of, we're usually pretty eye to eye on that. I mean, obviously, there's not you can't can't agree on everything, but it's not a it's not a big deal when when there is a disagreement. Now, obviously, she's with your Louisiana string of horses, but you have horses all over the country now. How difficult is it to manage those far flung strings of horses when you can't see them and Rosie can't see them? Well, you know, I have a great team. I mean, it's you know, my assistants do a good job, and it's it's been a, building the team has has been a process that's you know been trial and error with you know going through a few people but it's it's always been a strong unit and you know right now everything is in kentucky and at two different facilities and then over the summer we'll be in we're in new york kentucky and, and canterbury actually so um, winter time we're just we're new orleans and gulf stream so you know it's just having a good team and honestly there's a lot you can just after just years of dealing with things that you can diagnose over the phone what made you feel that a big operation was the way to go? Well, it's all I it's all I'd known, you know, and it's just I wasn't going to turn horses down, and the more the better. And it's I was used to managing a, a lot of horses, and honestly, like I I would uh, get bored with, with not much many to run. I like running. I like you know buying horses, claiming horses, uh, training babies. We like it all, and just the more action, the better. And um, you know that's pretty much it. I was just used to having a lot of horses, and that's. Uh, when I left Mike, I just didn't expect anything different. I mean, you couldn't just say, oh, I want to have a big string and it would appear, but I never doubted for a second that it would. Now, horses that have run at the fairgrounds have hit the board in the Kentucky Derby in recent years, but not the top step. Gunrunner finished third last year, Commanding Curve, a surprising second in 2014, Revolutionary was third in 2013, Nero, second in 2012. So what kind of setup in the race do you think Gervin will need to reach the finish line first? Um, you know, I just think a, I guess the best thing would be a a trip without having to get without having to get be stopped or impeded, you know. I think he can like I said he's been very versatile and you know in all different positions in in, the, in his races, so whatever is thrown at him, he'll be capable of handling and obviously whatever's thrown at Mike Smith uh, he's going to be capable of handling. So I couldn't be more any more confident in the in the pair of as individuals and as a team. Yeah, I'll go out on a limb and say Mike Smith, he's done okay for himself. Uh, what do you think it'll feel like to lead your first ever Kentucky Derby starter over to be saddled? 
Um, you know, it'll probably be a little, it'll be exciting, emotional, you know, it's, uh, there's been a lot to get to this point and, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much, that's pretty much best I can explain it. So, well, Joe Sharp will lead Gervin into the Kentucky Derby, the 143rd run for the Roses. Thank you so much for a few minutes, sir. Thanks for having me. Our thanks to Steven Sarkowski and to Joe Sharp. If you ask a NASCAR driver about the race in Indianapolis, he'll tell you about the Brickyard's history, but the huge purse is the attraction. Yet with the Daytona 500, though, those drivers, to a man, would run it for free. There are several thoroughbred races now that have super-sized purses. The Breeders' Cup, the Pegasus, and Dubai. Yet if you ask most horsemen which race they most want to win, the Kentucky Derby comes out on top. But why? The Derby's purse of $2 million is good these days, not great, but the tradition and prestige are off the charts. The pageantry, celebrities, my old Kentucky home, it's become a celebration of the arts. There are plenty of big events in sports with high stakes on the line, but not all of them come with a huge cachet. The Kentucky Derby is one the masses love to enjoy each year. Tis summer, and the people are gay. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on the Pink Podcatcher app on your iPhone. And you can get us on the Listen tab in the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. Remember to join us tomorrow when our guests will include jockey Rajiv Mirage and trainer Ian Wilkes. But for now, that's In The Gate. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you tomorrow.